Hello everyone and welcome to the Religious Nationalism Podcast. My name is Crawford Gribben and today Daryl Hart and I have the chance to catch up with Melanie McAllister. Melanie is Professor of American Studies and International Affairs at the George Washington University in Washington DC. She is the author of Epic Encounters, Culture, Media and US Interest in the Middle East since 1945 and more recently The Kingdom of God Has No Borders, A Global History of American Evangelicals. Melanie is currently co-editing Volume 4 of the Cambridge History of America and the World. Melanie, thanks for your time today and welcome to the show. It's nice to be here, thank you. Thank you. Well, I first encountered your work, I think, probably almost 20 years ago now in an article you wrote in the South Atlantic Quarterly in 2003 about the Left Behind novels and Christian fundamentalism's New World Order. You've obviously been working on these themes uh, for a long time. How has your previous work fed into The Kingdom of God is No Borders? Uh, yes, thank you for knowing about that article from so long ago. I, I actually... Uh, is an interesting transition for me to, I was working on the Left Behind novels, which um, as as your audience may know, is a series of novels by uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins that tells the story of the end times from a certain um, evangelical post-millennial dispensational perspective. And um, it, it really, um, was a huge, the, the series is 12 books, and it was a big bestseller at the turn of the century. They started coming out in the late 1990s. They went to about 2005. But right around 9-11, several of them they debuted as number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And I got interested in them because I, in my first book, um, which is about American representations of the Middle East, I have a, a chapter, and part of the chapter is about uh, American evangelical uh, fascination with Israel. And so when I first wrote, when I wrote that book, I was one of the few people who knew about that, really. It came out in, in the fall of 2001. Of course, that became much more something people talked about later. Um, and so when these Left Behind novels start hitting the bestseller list, I was asked to write something about them um, by the Washington Post. So the first thing I did was write an essay uh, uh, editorial for the Washington Post, and then I wrote this article. And I thought, okay, my next book is going to be about evangelical apocalyptic thinking and how it shows up in these novels and other parts of evangelical culture. And I'm just going to write a quick book, get that second book out there, and move on, you know. So I started working on that. And as I was doing it, I started reading more fully in things like Christianity Today and Eternity Magazine and other. Um, American evangelical publications. And I remember the moment when I thought, hmm, there's a lot more interesting stuff going on in evangelical views of the world than just the apocalyptic views of Israel. Like that's a thing, but it's by far the only, not the only thing. And in fact, it's kind of a small thing when you look at the whole picture. So I went down the rabbit hole that became, you know, a 12, 13 year process of writing my next book. Um, and the left behind was still going to be a chapter in that book, but it is at the end when I was having to cut 40% of my manuscripts for the book, uh, <laughs> my editor and several readers said, you know, this is the chapter that really no longer fits. Uh, so the thing that was the beginning wow. of that book was actually taken out of it, um, in the end. That's so do you think sense. you'll come back to it? Do you think you'll come back to it? Still? Oh, no, no, 
I, 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 it's done. I mean, I think it's very interesting and I think, um, it was really an important moment. And, uh, certainly in thinking about how evangelicals, uh, thought about the, the Middle East, it was, you know, not the whole story, but part of the story. Um, but no, I think that my, uh, what I came to understand, which was ultimately the more important thing to me was the diversity of evangelical perspectives. And that was the thing that, 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 that kind of captured me for the last book. Right. Well, I was struck, um, <clears throat> when I read this book a year or more ago and, um, thinking about it in connection with Heather Curtis's book on, um, holy humanitarianism, um, the, the degree to which evangelicals really have a soft spot for the rest of the world and for other human beings. And it's striking because for the last four years, white evangelicals, at least in the United States, have had this reputation of supporting this this wicked president. And, of course, he is wicked in many respects. I don't want to get into that. But I'm curious, you would probably finish this book roughly about the time of the election in 2016. So how much what you wrote about evangelicals in this book did you find to be sort of at odds with the public presentation of white evangelicals for the last four years? And it doesn't have to be that it was at odds, but it does seem to be something that's very different. This side of evangelicals is very different from the side of evangelicals who vote for someone like Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, actually, it was you touch on something that was very complicated for me because I think I tell a story about evangelical complexity, but the reality, and this is in the, the conclusion of the book that white evangelicals did support Trump at such high numbers. Um, I don't think it disproves my entire book, but it does raise questions about, well, who are the people that I'm talking about who are, I'm trying to think at least many of them in more complicated ways about their obligations to the rest of the world and what that means with folks who are deeply invested in a certain kind of nationalism. And when I think that the, the intersection that I find that help might help explain how even some of the folks that I write about in my book who are not necessarily deeply um, supportive of Trump some of them are, I mean, I write about a whole range of people, right. but um, is that uh, the the focus of the book or one of the focuses of the book is about the notion of Christian persecution on the global stage and how that has become a crucial part of evangelical identity, you know, how American evangelicals and also evangelicals in other places in the world have increasingly come mm -hmm. to identify through the sense that Christians are persecuted and they know about religious conflict in other parts of the world. Um, they are deeply interested in issues where Christians and Muslims are um, in conflict. They, you know, as I write about, they, they got very invested in the 1040 window and the notion of evangelizing the whole world that um, came out around 1989 through the turn of the century, where people began to talk about this part of the world where Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, but particularly Muslims, were um, in the uh, majority and where Christians saw themselves as both trying to evangelize, but also in conflict. And those conflicts are real. I mean, they happened in Nigeria, they happened in Egypt, they happened in um, Palestine and all sorts of places. But 
what happens is that American evangelicals increasingly um, saw that or, or that fed into a kind of a, a, a Islamophobia that is not unique to evangelicals, that is part of the broader discourse in American public life, but that is very strong among certain um, evangelicals. And that's not just white evangelicals, that is, that is uh, evangelicals across race in the United States tend to have pretty negative views of Islam. Um, and so what happened is that this sense of like, okay, so we Christians, evangelicals are a persecuted group. And so that fed into a sense of um, anxiety and persecution among white and other evangelicals in the U.S. So when President Trump went to Liberty University in January of 2016, he's um, trying to explain to them why they should vote for him. And he says, you know, we are going to protect Christians. If you're a Christian in Syria right now, you could get your head chopped off and we are going to protect Christians. And that, uh, you know, became a central part of the the so-called Muslim ban when he became president. Mm -hmm. So we're going to limit immigration from certain Muslim majority countries and we're going to give special um dispensation to uh, Christians who want to immigrate from those countries that ultimately was struck down, but that was the, the logic. So I do think that there's a kind of comp a complex relationship between the support for Trump and the broader uh, internationalism that, mm -hmm. you know, we want to see is, is quite different, but it's not always. But, so backing up though, a second before Trump, <clears throat> um, I mean, it does seem that the victimization was present among evangelicals even even before Trump, and so he he tapped that sentiment. What I'm curious about is the degree to which the evangelicals you write about, who have a more cosmopolitan outlook, because they have been around the world and seen other places, and any of us who have traveled. I mean, I keep up with things in Northern Ireland because I've been over to visit Crawford so many times, et cetera. I mean, it, ju it just gives you a foothold, toehold somewhere else. So these groups have identified with people in other parts of the world, which if we can com come back to David Hollinger at some point, but which gives them a cosmopolitan outlook that I would think is very different from, say, and I don't know if you've read uh, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Um, but say, you know, people, if, if they are evangelical in Appalachia who don't have a, a shared bond in some way with believers in Syria or somewhere else, that that's a different, the, the evangelicals that you talk, write about and have this victim sense of victimization are still more, much more cosmopolitan than your ordinary, than even maybe Jerry Falwell Jr. went back when he was president at at liberty. So I'm curious if you could calculate that at all, say, thinking about this before Trump and the, the degree to which these evangelicals were really cosmopolitan in a kind of way uh, that makes the way many missionaries or parachurch people with overseas ministries are. Yeah, you know, I, I tried to um, write about this in a way that uh, really gave a sense of how much I think things like university Christian fellowship or travel or reading about other parts of the world does change 
how some evangelicals have seen the rest of see the rest of the world and that that is important it's important for me as a professor to believe that travel and learning about other places matters right mm-hmm. and i believe it does um but it very much depends on the terms of that information the terms of that mm-hmm. encounter Jerry Falwell Sr. went all over the world. So did Jimmy Swagger. Jerry Falwell Sr. went to South Africa, which I talk about at great length. And he goes and he meets with people in South Africa and he comes back and he calls Desmond Tutu a phony because he has gone and met with a certain subset of white and black South Africans who tell him exactly what he wanted to hear and tell him how important it is to defeat communism and tell him that they don't want to rapid an end to apartheid if it means communist is going to take over as they surely are, you know, he gets a certain story and he comes back having, you know, and does a television um, special where he talks about his two week trip to South Africa and all the stuff he learned. So it's not that just, just traveling, just going makes you more sophisticated or more liberal minded. It really depends on the terms of that going. So, um, you know, one of the things I write about was short term missions and, and this is related, but, um, is that short-term missions, how students, and, and usually it is often students who are going, how they experience those, whether they come back more liberal-minded or not, depends a lot on the terms of how those are framed. And um, a lot of times, some of the research that's been done by evangelical scholars shows that students actually sometimes come back from two-week short-term missions um, more racially biased in their attitudes they go and they they kind of have this kind of drive-by sense of like oh things are different there and they come back and talk about how happy the poor people are in Mexico and they they know less from their experience so it really depends and one of the things I really appreciated about InterVarsity I have to say um I've been joking with people at InterVarsity they should be sending me a check because I really am impressed (laughs) by the ways in which they have tried to set up urban trek and other things to train students to look um, more carefully and to not let them simply have a tourist experience. Because I think that that's a a big part of the problem with a lot of ways that evangelicals travel. We've, We've had a lot of discussion in the UK over the last couple of years, Melanie, about a phenomenon known as the white savior complex in which People typically go on these kind of short-term um, missions, but not not always religious missions, you know, humanitarian mm. events or whatever, um, always with the, the same kind of intention of doing good. Uh, and often these visits are captured in what I think could very easily be considered to be quite provocative pictures of white young people holding typically black babies. And, you know, it's a very racially coded kind of um, set of images, of course. Um I suppose that what, what, what I'm wondering is what, what how do you see this relationship between nationalism and internationalism? But you know, it, it's it's playing to define evangelicalism. Some evangelicals are are becoming more progressive, some much less progressive. But but crucially, is it changing the way that evangelicals not only? I mean, you've mentioned how they think about other parts of the world. Is it also changing the way in which they think about themselves? Can you see the same kind of white savior complex? in people who actually want, want to point to a different kind of savior? Um, your, the white saviorism stuff is, is interesting to hear you um, raise because my students talk about it all the time. White saviorism is something that they think about a lot and I'm happy that they do. 
um, precisely because of all these alternative spring breaks and those kind of things. Um, I will say that an important thing to remember in the U.S. context is that a lot of evangelicals who are going abroad are not white. So many of them are, but InterVarsity is an organization that has a lot of Asian students in it and are very involved with Asian American um, communities. Um, the, I went and talked to some people who went abroad to um, and took their churches abroad who are African-American pastors. So the saviorism complex um, can be, it, it certainly has a kind of racial element to it, but I think it really is about wealth and power. And people who go into situations where they have so much more and, um, and recognize that end up in very complicated relationships to that privilege often, even if they don't want to be in that situation. So um, I say that because one of the things I got really interested in in my book was about the different ways that people of color who are evangelicals have encountered different and always not always so different have encountered these kind of global phenomena. But I do think that in those contexts, um, there is the sense that, and, and I would talk about it as Americanists, but of course it's true in the UK and other European places too, where that brings so much authority. And I'll tell you a, a funny story that actually didn't make it into the book, but I think is quite telling. Um, I went to South Sudan, well, what was in Southern Sudan, with a church of um, a, an adult short-term missions group from a church outside of Milwaukee, a big mega church. And it was all adults. And they had a long-term, long-standing relationship with people there. They were doing everything right as far as short-term missions goes. They knew people and all of that. Um, but, uh, you know, the title of the, the chapter where I write about that is I'm not a big checkbook because Dick Robinson, the minister who was leading that group, the, uh, he was a global missions minister at the church. He um, did not want to be seen as the person who was coming in, writing the check and being Mr. You know, Santa Claus. But of course, he's coming from a church, a mega church in one of the wealthiest counties in the country mm. to one of the poorest places in the world. And I can say, Dick, Dick, of course, you're a big checkbook. What do you think? I mean, you know, like, right? But um, while we were there, there was a uh, an event where uh, they had supported, the church had supported this school in an, a region, the Komaganza region of, of Southern Sudan. And the school was new and fancy, and they had support it being built. And so we went to visit this school. And while we're there, the group from, from, from Elmbrook Church is there with their their local folks that they were working pretty closely with. And those folks are not the same as the Komaganza people where the the school is built. You know, there's a lot of different ethnic groups in Sudan. So while we're there, they they've called the children in to come and kind of meet the the Americans. And there's a very complicated translation activity, which in somehow I think is symbolic of a lot of the things we're talking about today, where Dick and the other people all say hello and offer their greetings in English. And then one of the local ministers, Ramadan, uh, who is a minister, despite that Muslim name, um, translates from English to Arabic. And then from one of the local children translates from Arabic to Komaganza to mm. tell people what's being said. So there's a very complicated um, translation. 
And uh, so I hear Dick say what he says, and I don't, my Arabic's not great, but I have some. And so then I hear Ramadan translating it in quotes, because he's not really translating. He turns around to them and says, let me introduce you to these white people. And so then he says whatever he says. And so later I said to him, Ramadan, what would you have done if some of our group is all white people, um, but what if some of our group had been African-Americans? What would you have said then, you know, to when you translated? And he said, I would have said, let me introduce you to these white people. <laughs> because, right, the category is a category of wealth and power. Yeah. Um, and so I think people have to think about those kind of relationships and, and how difficult it is to step outside of them, you know, despite whatever kind of well-intentioned stuff is going on, which is not to say they can't be. And I think that um, the folks in the church were working pretty hard to do that, hmm. but, um, but you, but you don't, you don't undo global inequality with good intentions, you know? Well, I mean, that relates to several questions, but one that, really comes to mind is the political categories that the people you study you've studied um take with them um and whether or not they recognize how powerful the united states is even though they themselves may feel like they are the victims of certain kinds of uh, uh marginal status because of america's secularization etc but um but recognizing that uh, not simply the wealth, but having access to these places relies upon governmental structures that allow people to do business in other parts of the world. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering how, and, and so this also relates to the white savior issue, the degree to which people still identify with America on these expeditions, thinking that um, Americans really can save Okay, it's American Christians, and they're doing the name of Jesus, but still, it's also America and the kind of resources and access that America provides. There's a certain sense in which this is nationalist, and not in a bad way necessarily, because, I mean, we can talk about the degree to which you think nationalism is a bad or good thing. I think it's inevitable that you can't do modern politics right now without the nation state in some way, but still, the degree to which these people are somewhat innocent of their nationalist identity. I think there's a lot of that. I think people want to say, you know, I am not going out into the world, you know, spreading the gospel of Americanism. At least some people want to say that, but that in fact, you see the kind of the privileges that come with it, the ability to travel, the money it takes to do this, but also all sorts of assumptions and including assumptions that race and power shouldn't matter. I mean, uh, other, mm -hmm. other people are quite aware of how race and power matter. Um, and um, they would, you know, the, the engagement with that as a reality is not something that most American Christians of any denomination and including evangelicals have a lot of skills at, in my view. Mm. So actually talking about what does it mean to be Americans in the world, to have the ability to travel, to have such wealth, to have the presumption that 
um, you know, you come from a particularly blessed or sanctified place that so many people have. And it really is, I think, one of the worst forms of um, uh, boundary construction, right? That, that God has somehow blessed the place that you happen to be born in a particular way. Um, and so um, I think that there is that there's a lot of gap in that. And maybe that's where you mentioned David Hollinger earlier. So let me just come back to his book because he writes, David Hollinger writes about mainline Protestant missionaries and their long-term trips abroad, you know, their experiences abroad, which often were many years and involved language learning and those kinds of things. Um, and he finds them to come back and be um, quite liberal in their orientation and in their impact in general. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's some, I have some questions about that, but I definitely think that there is um, something about going abroad and staying for a long time that does change you in a different way than these shorter, these shorter kinds of encounters. And Melanie, can I just ask a, a follow-up to that? Do you have any sense that, that, people who go abroad for these kinds of activities come back feeling less marginalized as evangelicals in the United States than they were before they left. When now, you say less marginalized in the U.S., what do you mean? Well, you know, so, so much of what, what I would see from this side of the Atlantic uh, of American Christian nationalism is, is built around this idea of lost power or some kind of conspiracy that's keeping us from the power we once had. You know, there's all kinds of marginality built into that narrative, isn't there? Uh, and then, you know, your book describes all kinds of, 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 of contexts, South Sudan, I suppose, being, being as good an example as any uh, of, of Christians who are genuinely, or, or in Sudan generally, uh, Christians who are genuinely being marginalised for different kinds of reasons. Does, does, I mean, do, do you get a sense that people who, who, who see that, Americans who see that, then come back and say, well, the marginality we face is nothing. Um, and it's no longer a part of their identity in the same way that it used to be. No, I do not see that. Mm -hmm. um, I think you see people often say, right, people have it, you know, things that they are ex experiencing are so much worse. But actually what I've seen, and I've been to, some um, persecuted Christians conferences that are all, you know, white Americans, uh, Rick Scarborough and others just like leading these, these quite conservative conferences where they stand up and say, you know, of course things are much worse in China or Sudan or Syria, but that um, they, uh, that those, that persecution is, is, you know, uh, something we have to be ready for that that might be happening at our door next if we let too many muslims in to immigrate or if we let the secularist win or if we um you know let hillary clinton win or any of those kind of models where there is so much purchase to that sense of victimization and that's not just for evangelicals in general we can talk about how um you know perceiving yourself as a victim can have a very galvanizing power for identity in a lot of ways, whether that perception is incorrect or correct. And so you see that. Now, I want to say that I say that, and that's, I think that's right. I do think that one thing that I saw happen, um, and this is with a, um, a different group of people going to South Sudan, 
the African-American Christian group that I that went to South Sudan that I interviewed and talked to and that were very involved in organizing on behalf of South Sudan, including South Sudan's um, ultimate independence, and who were part of a, a larger community that misread South Sudan's um, persecution, uh, the southern the suffering of Southern Sudanese as entirely a Christian Muslim conflict, as opposed to being something far more complicated around ethnicity and uh, battle over resources and regional identities, and read it as a Christian Muslim conflict in ways that were quite um, had some very negative impacts. Mm-hmm. But um, they did the the, the African American uh, one of the women that I talked to who went there. Um, uh, Gloria White Hammond did come back. I mean, she was part of that story, but she did come back saying, you know, really what people need are wells. Like the biggest Mm. problem here is not the, I mean, the war she was very upset about and and had a lot to say about, but like she ended up coming back and helping um, Mercy Corps uh, build wells. So she did come back with a deeper understanding of economics as a, as a primary issue. Mm. If I, if I could circle back briefly, um, to Hollinger, since we've brought him up now a couple times, but I'm wondering what you think of this, Melody, that the difference between his good cosmopolitans and his bad cosmopolitans, the evangelicals are kind of the defective cosmopolitans because they don't quite have the, the, um, the ways of sort of embracing everyone. Uh, they're not as comprehensive. They're still a kind of sectarian mindset to it. Um, but in hearing you talk about uh, a couple of questions ago, if the difference is such that mainline Protestants are comfortable using levers of power in ways that evangelicals maybe are innocent or naive about it and can easily get swept up, say, in the narrative of the of the politics at the time, say, when Jerry Falwell is visiting South Africa or something during the Cold War or whatever, taking those th- that perspective with you as you go, which could really very much frame how you view the situation there. Um, and, of course, Hollinger is writing about Protestants well before – I mean, into the Cold War era, but before it. But it does seem to me that there is a, a level of comfort that older mainline Protestants had with these – operations in ways that evangelicals don't have as much experience with it. And I, so I, and I wonder if that's at all useful. Uh, that's very interesting. So David and I got to know each other as we were each wording, working on these books and I read his manuscript and he read mine and as they were, you know, we were working on them and he and I have had this conversation many times Um where he's always like, everything evangelicals did, ecumenical Protestants did 30 years before, and, you know, they don't count, they, you know, they, they're behind the t- times. And I was like, okay, David, but still, you know, <laughs> let's think about it as important. Um, but I think that you, what, what the, the actually part of the difference is that for um, Hollinger's, the, 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 the mainline Protestants that Hollinger is most interested in came to doubt the um, the the very process of um, trying to evangelize other people. It's not yeah. just that they came back more liberal in their politics, but they, they came back 
doubting the priority or, or superiority of Christianity by and large. And that, that move he considers pretty salutary, that it stopped people not just, you know, not only helped them have a better perspective on, you know, conflicts in Thailand, but it also actually stopped them from trying to change other people's religion or other people's cultural practices. Um, and so for him, the, the dividing line, I think, is ultimately that um, mm. as much as anything else. Right. And, you know, evangelicals, whatever else they do, they mostly don't stop trying to convert people. Right. And so that's a that's an important distinction for both sides of that equation. It's not to say, again, I don't think he believes and I don't believe that that means that um, ecumenical Protestants are not Christian. They don't believe in this, but they have a different interpretation of salvation or the possibility of that. So, um so that's one thing. I think the other thing is that in the period that you're, that he's talking about, you know, he ends in about 1960, 65, you're right. Uh, evangelicals are much less comfortable operating lovers of power, but I don't think we could say that now. I mean, evangelicals have been in and out of powerful positions in government, you know, from the Reagan era up until Trump with the Bush administration. They, they, they are not. We're not talking about people who are marginal um, to American politics or, and not talking about only Southerners or only people who are less educated. We're talking about people with, um, I think Robert Jeffries of uh, the Dallas um, Baptist First Baptist Church is completely comfortable operating levers of power in whatever ways he can. He just has a more populist orientation to doing it. So <clears throat> it does seem, though, back just to push you a little bit more about the Hollinger argument that even though mainline Protestants lose a sense of Christianity being special, and maybe they talk about America's exceptionalism differently, but they still think America's pretty special, especially yeah. during fighting two world wars and the Cold War. And some of the architects of Cold War policy are prominent people with mainline Protestant backgrounds. So I guess what I'm trying to work out in some ways is the degree to which if you lose the sense that Christianity is special, it doesn't necessarily mean that you lose a sense that America is special. And if evangelicals are still attached to the uniqueness of Christianity and then they go overseas, the degree to which that colors their sense of American importance, I you know, I don't know. And maybe you have a chart somewhere and there's an appendix at the back of your book. But it <laughs> Explain exactly. Right. Yeah. No, I do not. And I think that I think that, um, you know, there's a uh, um, one of the girls who went to Egypt with InterVarsity that I write about in the last chapter of the book. Um, she, they, they worked with Sudanese, but they were in Egypt. And um, so they were working with Sudanese Christians and teaching in the school and that sort of thing. And um, after we got back from Egypt, I interviewed her again and I asked her, you know, what she thought she had learned from this experience being in Egypt and working with Sudanese. And, you know, she had, like all of them, been kind of enchanted with the, the Sudanese Christians that they, they met and worked with. And she just said, oh, Melanie, heaven is going to be packed. <laughs> which I thought was great. And it was, again, that kind of a post-nationalist sentiment one is kind of imagining might be possible that she's recognizing that 
in heaven, it's going to be all sorts of people. And a lot of them are going to be not American, right? That she's seeing how, how big the world is. Um, so in that sense, people were, you know, pushed or trying to get past certain kinds of nationalism. Um, I think that the, uh, the missionaries that we're talking about in Hollinger's book and the people that I'm talking about in my book, that the, the sense that, um, America is a special place in some fashion is very hard to shed. It's mm-hmm. very hard to shed. I mean, it's hard to shed for secular people like that sense. I mean, it is, I'm, I'm sure it was hard for the Romans to shed too. When you grow up and live <laughs> in the most powerful country the world has ever known and one of the wealthiest, you, 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 that sense of, of election is a, a very insidious and very deep. And so I think that um, it is, it was prevalent. It remained prevalent for many of the people that Hollinger talks about, and it remains prevalent for many of the people I talk about. Well, Melanie, as we, we come towards the end. Um, I'm Although I have a one more question I need to ask her, but go ahead. Go ahead. Diana, before you wrap up. Okay. Um, so you teach international relations. And I don't know how much political theory that takes you into or not. Um, but I, I'm curious if in talking about nationalism, as Crawford and I try to figure this out, if you have, if you come down on the ethnic versus civic nationalism debate and the degree to which I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in say liberal versus conservative politics, maybe in the U.S., maybe elsewhere, but I mean, again, the, the storyline for the last several years is, is that nationalism, there's a kind of toxic, toxicity associated with it on the right. But, um, but does the ethnic civic distinction help with thinking through nationalism? And if you don't teach on that or you don't want to comment on it, that's fine. But I, since we have you here and you do teach outside history and outside religion, I thought I'd give you a shot at it. Well, thank you. Um, I don't know if I have a, a super uh, sophisticated response, but I will say this, that <clears throat> one of the tasks in um, constructing American nationalism is to try to narrate a version of it that is multicultural, because that is the kind of nationalist story um, of the predominant, I want to say mainline, but mainstream historical narrative about the United States, even for very conservative people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, as we have, um, you know, kind of developed this notion of America as an immigrant nation, and as people try to talk up through that, there's a lot of messiness around the edges but are not even around the edges, but that sense that what that what Americans worship in theory is not their ethnicity, but their flag and the kind of powerful notion of the kind of flag worshiping America is this notion that we, you know, this is a multitude multitude of different people who come together. And when that fails, as it has failed frequently, um, and maybe even consistently, um, it fails because of the, you know, the kind of ways that people um, um, invent 
to to challenge it, but they don't consistently go against it. So people would say, even the most right wing people in the United States who are nationalist and 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 racialist today, and I'm not just talking about evangelicals, I'm talking about in general, right. would say, well, you know, I mean, now I'm talking about white people. Our our immigrants, we're a nation of immigrants, but our immigrants behaved better than these immigrants do, right? And the Latino people who are now voting increasingly, still not majority, but increasingly for Trump would say, well, our generation of immigrants behaved better, but these Muslims, we don't know about them. They're maybe iffy or these new immigrants from Mexico as opposed to uh, us from Cuba or uh, earlier immigrants from Mexico. So you see the ways in which people um, kind of reframe the the narrative, but the ability to say, uh, and so white Christian nationalism is often, even today, narrated as Christian nationalism. It is white. It is about whiteness. But people don't explicitly talk about it that way. And that, in fact, you know, when Trump wanted to have his Evangelicals for Trump, uh, you know, his opening um, ceremony for that happened in a Latino church in, in Florida. Because the sense hmm. is that um, the the nationalist narrative cannot be explicitly ethnic in the United States, not in, not in um, in mainstream politics. It is, of course, on the right, explicitly ethnic and racial. But well, it's even. I mean, so would you? <laughs> not to put you on the spot, and you could take take the fifth. But I mean, where. Um, I've, some of the people I follow on Twitter, historians, um, John Turner, I'll, I'll identify him, who just wrote this book on the, on the Pilgrims that came out last last this year, earlier this year, and of course this is the 400th anniversary of of Pilgrims, and um, and that's still very much a part of our of our narrative. I mean, so much of nationalism revolves around the stories we tell about the nation. And the pilgrims still loom large, and they loom large because at least annually we do this thing called Thanksgiving, and somehow we get all these images again of however wrong those images are. So do you think – so rather than putting you on the spot, do you think in 50 years that narrative will be uh, no longer in play of the the English English Protestants coming and – seeing ourselves, seeing America starting there at Plymouth Rock in some way. Oh, I hope, I hope it's gone. I, I do think that. So you don't like Turkey? Uh, okay. Well, I don't. That's true. <laughs> um, but I do think that um, younger generations are in, in the U.S. are trained differently on that. You know, they still have Thanksgiving, but they, they know something about the complexity of how, um, at least the younger people I know of complexity of, of, of what that story is about. Um, they have a strong sense of the nation as um, built on the genocide of Native American peoples, even if they don't carry that around in a day-to-day way. They know. I mean, I don't think this is this is surprising to any anybody who grows up in the United States now. Even my father, who um, who died last year, but he was very conservative, Southerner, um, um, completely, you know, had terrible racial politics, but definitely had this critique of Thanksgiving, you know, that, 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 that story was a story he could, he could really critique. Um, I think that what we see, and I don't want to be, um, 
uh, Pollyannish about this because we see it's a terrible time in terms of racial politics in the United States and the racism is getting worse and worse in many quarters. But I think it's getting worse and worse in some quarters because it is actually changing in others. And so that um, the fact that you see this, this bifurcation is actually a sign that um, there is some increasing awareness on the part of um, uh, all sorts of people in the United States that this is <clears throat> moving to be a, uh, a, a non-majority non white country that in, in, in the next 50 years. So I would expect it, a lot of that to change. Yeah. Well, Melanie, well, thanks for answering. Can, can, I just, can, I, can I just ask you to tease out the answer a little bit more? I'm really struck by the way that the book, the epilogue to the book, ends with this very prescient view of the Trump presidency. And you seem to hit on all the themes that do, in fact, crop up in the next four years of reporting, whether it's Supreme Court controversies or religious liberty or, um, you know, what, what is the relationship between America and the Muslim world? Um, if you were to rewrite the epilogue now, as we stand in the cusp of President Biden's administration coming in, how would you change that? Do you think that the next four years are going to see things, the subject of your book, is it going to change the, the conclusions you would draw? I, you know, I think that um, that's a really good question and I've been a bit of a tough one because I don't, um, I don't really know where American evangelicals are going. Um, I do think that the racial diversity of American evangelicals is crucial and significant, but I also think that four years of the Trump's presidency, I, I, what, one thing I would, I would change is that I still wrote about evangelicals as a multiracial group of, you know, people who were understood themselves to be a part of a shared community. Um, and I wrote that just right after the election and, you know, um, so that our, early 2017. Um, and what I think has happened since then is that although the people that one might identify as evangelical, either by belief or by what churches they go to are, are indeed 25 to 35% people of color in the United States. Uh, I think increasingly many of those people, certainly um, the African-Americans among them and the more liberal people of color in the Asian and Latino communities are increasingly alienated from anything they would call evangelicalism, people who would have perhaps identified with that term or at least been willing to be identified with it are increasingly <clears throat> unwilling. And so I see a community that might really be fracturing and might be fracturing in part on racial lines. Hmm. So I think I was wrote this book in a way to say, not, I mean, I wrote the book for many reasons, but one thing that was throughout the book, I mean, I mostly focused on black evangelicals and white. I didn't do as much with Asian or Latino as as I would have liked, but um, I wanted not to talk about evangelicalism as a solely white community. I don't like it when people say how white evangelicals vote tells us something about what evangelicals are in the sense that it tells us something about what white people are as much as it tells us anything else. But I now think we might be seeing a community that's quite divided. And we may find, you know, increasingly we've seen some of this happening in some churches, but we may find it with um, all sorts of parachurch organizations and others where racial divides are deeper. They were, they were decreasing and I think they're increasing again. So in that sense, I think my sense that uh, the Trump administration would have would put evangelicals at a crossroads is only increased, 
but I don't know that it will mean that, you know, we have a community that might be, um, you know, kind of evolving to greater um, liberalism. Some of that is happening and some ways we're seeing community dividing. And I think that's um, very much in play. I will say that I think, and I remain the case that um, fewer, I, I think if we look at how many evangelicals voted for Biden, there are quite a few. And that he is going to need to um, be able to recognize that uh, there's an opportunity to uh, to speak to and govern those people who are not kind of sold um, the entire Trump agenda. And um, I hope people do that. Mm. Well, Melanie McAllister, author of The Kingdom of God is No Borders, it's been a real privilege to have you on the show today. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks very much, Melanie. My pleasure. Dial, that was that, that was really, really interesting and lots there to engage with. I especially enjoyed what Melanie said at the end of that conversation about the, the, the prospects of evangelicalism and the possibility of a breakup. And I suppose I was struck by two things by what she said there. One is the present reality, which is that evangelicals, as she put it, from Southern Baptist or Oneness Pentecostal backgrounds, can nevertheless share a common culture, often online, often mediatized in some way, but also that uh, this trans-denominational, you might almost say non-theological or even a-theological religious culture, nevertheless is, could still break up according to racial or cultural lines. So, I mean, how do you, as a long-term writer but historian um, of evangelicalism, respond to that? Both the idea that there's there's no there's no orthodoxy about this, but nevertheless, that cultural and racial realities are still very powerful. <clears throat> well, part I guess part of it is <clears throat> those racial and ethnic realities are just woven in. To the American experience and the different peoples who lives here, who live here, and and therefore they they manifest themselves in the kinds of religion that people practice, especially say among Protestants. But but what's also striking to me, having just taught a course on <clears throat> religion in the U.S., is the um, religious freedom that eventually emerged both at the national level and then at the state levels meant that it was possible for anybody to form any kind of religious group that they wanted to do, except for maybe when the Mormons get a little frisky with marriage. And so you have to have a Mormon war to bring those people in. And yet eventually we'd domesticate them. But I, I keep thinking that sometimes that U.S. religious history is sort of like Cromwell's England, where everybody could do what was right in their own eyes it's because there's and no what, king. It's because there's no king. You need to read Judges right. more. Yeah. Well, or there's no there's no state church, and so religion, Christianity, as much as I'm ambivalent about the imperial Christianity that that arose after Constantine's conversion, et cetera, and I'm I'm suspicious of religious establishments. Those kinds of establishments do codify and make 
and they set boundaries for religious groups. I mean, obviously, even one of the first things that happens in Christianity after Constantine's conversion is the Council of Nicaea and the definition of Trinitarian Orthodoxy. Um, so if you don't have a governmental structure to give you uh, some kind of definition, uh, then what do you have? Well, in, in 20th century America, the way I understand evangelical history is that middle-aged white guys in the 40s tried to come together to create something that wasn't fundamentalist and it certainly wasn't mainline liberal, but we're going to try to make a group of evangelicals and give them some kind of coherence. And eventually when Jimmy Carter becomes president in 1976, the press picks up on this. And now the term evangelical begins to stick as a category that people can use to identify everyone from oneness Pentecostals to the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, but it was always, in my estimation, a, a kind of construction uh, that that tried to make this particular voting block into a reality. And if it turns out that those people, if it's not as reliable a category for understanding the way certain kinds of religious people vote, you know, then it, of, of course, it's going to break up. Um, whether someone will rally to try to put together some kind of ecumenical body or interdenominational group or inter-congregational group that will fill the void that, say, the structures of post-World War II evangelicalism no longer fill, um, I don't know. I mean, that's obviously prophecy more than history, but it does seem that that window of American evangelicalism uh, ran aground and Donald Trump probably exposed the difficulties of that. Uh, and yet the prospects of a Biden presidency for all that it may allow for the breakup of evangelicalism will also give more conservative politically and religiously conservative, probably socially conservative evangelicals a foil to react against and, and therefore you could argue that the chances for some kind of reification of evangelicalism are better under a Biden-type presidency than under a Trump-type presidency. In some ways, Trump exposes the weaknesses, doesn't he? Uh, but but Biden yeah. actually creates the conditions of that, you know, or could create the conditions of that perception of marginality that Melanie was talking about, by which these competing groups with very different orthodoxies and pieties and so on could actually come together again. But that, that depends on what it depended on, surely, in the 1940s and 50s, which was a generation of very nimble entrepreneurs who are prepared to sit lightly in liturgies and theologies, but are prepared to do a lot of hard work when it comes to building profit-making institutions. Right. But here's the thing. I mean, I, I've been working on um, a piece about evangelicals and political conservatism, um, and it's taken me back to some pieces written at the end of the Bush presidency when there one uh, article in the New York Times by David Kirkpatrick, I think that's the journalist's name, wrote something called the Evangelical Crack Up. And you had the emergence even 15 years ago, roughly, of a kind of Rick Warren kind of evangelicalism versus the older Jerry Falwell, senior 
James Dobson focus on the family evangelicalism. So, you know, in some ways, the Bush presidency um, was a last gasp, perhaps. And I'm not sure that the Obama presidency, where you had conservatives slash religious conservatives, you know, perhaps put some of their energies into things like the Tea Party. I don't recall seeing a an evangelical group emerge during those years of opposition, say, um, because I think that older generation really did leave the scene. Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, may have tried to, he, he just, he just doesn't have, he didn't have the capacity aside from the, the um, restraint personally uh, to put something like that together. Um, you also might need, the way Jerry Falwell Sr. did, some operatives in the one of the political parties to bring those people together. But again, it points to how much, say, religion... Depends on government. Right. Or political, political parties to identify yourself, which, of course, feeds into what we're trying to think about with religious nationalism. So, I mean, I suppose that raises the question of whether a religious movement that supposedly prizes the, the distinction between church and state actually depends upon it for its own existence. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. I'm, um, I'm toying with the idea of writing an article called The Evangelical Trapezoid. Because <laughs> I think it's a quadrilateral that can be bent in all kinds of ways. <laughs> To explain all kinds of things. We need a GIF for that on Twitter. Or maybe maybe the evangelical parallelogram. <laughs> Does this have any resonance in the UK for, for Protestants there? Well, I think, I mean, I think that we find it as difficult to define evangelicalism as you do, partly because evangelicalism, as Melanie's book points out, is, is a global phenomenon. And, you know, I think it's very difficult now to identify distinctive national evangelicalisms, if that's... A way of putting it so that you know maybe 20 years ago there was such a thing as scottish evangelicalism it was strongly linked to the national church um you know it had all of these institutions it had recognizable preachers who had recognizable influence and so on but nowadays you know it's a bit like um that that great book in architecture uh, the geography of nowhere you know the one i mean um yes. you know, it, it, in the same way that town centers now look completely alike no matter which country you're in in the western world at least so too the same obtains with evangelicalism. You know, evangelicalism is a religion of nowhere. Um, so, you know, I suppose we could go back to the old somewheres and nowheres, that discussion about cosmopolitanism and, and localism. But it just strikes me that, you know, what you see in the UK now with, with some, you know, some exceptions, but generally speaking, is a kind of a slightly toned down version of what we see um, in America, obviously, UK evangelicalism is much less politically significant. Um, it has it has its um, it has its MPs in Parliament, uh, but but you know people like Tim Farron, former leader of the Liberal Democrat, the, the Liberal Party, I should say, the old Lib Dems. Um, you know, but he, he would have very different politics from an American Ben Sass, um, mm -hmm. but, but very similar theology. You know. And um, and so I think in a way that speaks to um, the, the the growing ambiguity of what evangelicalism actually means, um, and, and whether it should have any meaning at all outside of your congregational meeting house. Do you think 
that the internationalization of evangelicalism has really been an internationalization of American evangelicalism. And I don't say that with any kind of sense of pride, but that America emerging as the leader of the free world during the Cold War and having access to such levers of mass communication that everybody did, but when you're such a big player in, in world affairs as the United States was, it's easier for the churches perhaps and the producers of you know media of all kinds to make a dent on on countries around the world, which again I don't think is necessarily a good thing. Well, it's a really interesting question. I mean, yeah, I suppose we need to think about what the name evangelicalism is, does, comes from, and so on. And it's got this kind of trajectory in the German Reformation and and so on. But setting that to one side, what we talk about today is evangelicalism surely only exists as an American religion. So it, it was only ever an American expression of popular Protestant community. <clears throat> so that, I mean, I suppose, for example, when Billy Graham starts coming to the UK in the 1950s, there's no organised evangelicalism in uh, as a as an entity. Certainly, nothing like what he represents from Chicago. Not banner of truth. No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. I mean, it's uh, in that period a fairly sectarian organisation. Only sets off in yeah. 1958, of course. But um, but you know, when Billy Graham comes to the UK, he begins to insist that local church leaders start begin to cooperating across denominations, promoting this conversionistic preaching. And I don't think that had ever happened up to that point. That was why it was so significant. And that's why people like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who were associated with Banner of Truth uh, so much in the early days, grew so quickly, so very alarmed by this. Um, hmm. It's one thing to bring small Welsh dissenting chapels together for a preaching rally, but to stretch out across you know, the, the, the establishment churches of Scotland, England, uh, and, and you know, to, to, to draw in some of the dissenting movements which were moving in a much more uh, liberal direction, the Baptist Union of Great Britain, for example, you know, w was to attempt something I think that hadn't been done before. So you've got the Moody rallies, Moody and Sankey rallies in the 1880s and so on, which in some ways anticipate um, the Billy Graham type introduction of evangelicalism, but they're still denominational, you know, they're still sponsored by denominations. Um, mm. that, that, you know, that, that, Is that true for the prayer meeting revival? Of 1859, 1859 too? yeah. Um, I mean, if you wanted to make an argument for the origins of British, Irish, evangelicalism, that's the moment you would start, I think. But, yeah. um, but I mean, certainly in Ireland, that's overwhelmingly a Presbyterian experience. Yeah. Uh, in Scotland, it's overwhelmingly a Presbyterian experience. There's small groups like, you know, Baptists, Plymouth Brethren, who, after 1859, begin to get a bit of a toehold in some areas um, where they had never previously been able to exist um northeast of ireland parts of scotland as well but um no uh, the, even, even the prayer meeting revival or the 1859 revival as we call it here i think it's overwhelmingly presbyterian hmm. um so yeah i think yeah evangelicals i mean it, mu it must be an american religion mustn't it <laughs> something well. else to blame me for Well, you know, it does, it does, it could be the case too that the United States provides us the kind of conditions for this kind of uh, practice and piety to uh, flourish. I don't really like that word, but to um, take root 
in some way, or at least um, just spread. But yeah, I, I think that's that's a narrative that historians here have not really begun to look at yet, which is the Americanization of culture. And it's there, obviously, in, in popular culture, but it's 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 there at every level of culture. Mm. So that you know that the world increasingly looks homogenous to those of us who are looking across the Atlantic. So there you are. Well, on that on that happy thought. <laughs> See you next time. Okay. Good to talk to you. Take care.